0: well good morning Southwinds. it is so very good to see each of you here in the worship center also want to say welcome to those of you who are across our campus in the refinery and those of you who are joining us online so glad that you are worshiping with us today i hope all of you wherever you are will get your bibles open uh, to first peter chapter 3 verses 8 through 22 as our text this morning We're continuing our Hope for Exiles uh, teaching series through this letter. And if you've been with us, you'll know that we have for several weeks now been learning that God calls us to live beautiful lives as exiles, lives which point people to Jesus. One of Peter's key teachings, and we're going to see this uh, a lot in the next couple of weeks, is that beautiful lives always involve suffering. And and Peter is showing us all through this letter um, why we suffer, and what happens when we suffer. And today, he's going to show us that we can learn how to suffer well. I want to put this in a statement that you can write down in your notes. And it's just like this. The beautiful life God calls us to live as exiles always, say always. always. Involves suffering. Exiles who live beautiful lives learn. Say learn. Learn, learn to suffer Well, and Peter is talking, maybe you've noticed this, about our conduct. He uses that word over and over again, and he tells us that we we must live honorable lives, lives full of good deeds that people can actually see, and uh, lives full of good deeds that will lead these people who see to glorify God. But living like this gets very difficult when we suffer because suffering always feels unfair, especially when we're trying to do the right thing, to live for God, right? Um, because we're made in the image of a just God, deep inside every one of us, we just have this unquenchable longing, desire for fairness and justice. That, that's why we love stories where injustice gets made right. Don't you love those kind of stories? Um Even when it's just little things. I I heard a story not too long ago... This happened a few years ago in Colorado. A guy named David Hagler was stopped by a policeman. And he was driving a little sports car. And the officer wrote him a ticket, even though he said other people were going faster than him. Even though he really didn't think he was exceeding the speed limit. But, you know, he just had kind of a fast-looking car. And he just thought it was really unfair. And he explained that he's normally a very careful driver. And and he would be very careful for the rest of the day. And wouldn't the officer please be reasonable and just kind of let things slide. But the officer was hard-nosed. He wrote him a ticket, and it just wasn't fair. And he thought that that was the end of the story until a few months later when David Hagler was an umpire in the softball league, and the game started, and guess who the first batter was who came to the plate? It was the cop who had written him up. And he now had a very, very different attitude about things. And the cop said, so... uh, How'd the, the thing with the ticket turn out? And David Hagler looked at him and said, you'd better swing at everything. <laughs> no, we love stories like that? I mean, it's just this longing for justice. It begins early in our lives. It never leaves us. I mean, have you ever noticed how often kids are like always saying it's not fair? fair. Have you also noticed how often adults find themselves crying out, life isn't fair? It isn't fair that many of us had to grow up without a father. It isn't fair that many of us had to grow up with a mother who hardly paid any attention to us. It isn't fair that some people receive more physical and mental abilities than we did. It isn't fair when someone less qualified than we are gets the job over us. It isn't fair when one person invests in this unknown high-tech stock and it multiplies a thousand times and we invest in another unknown high-tech stock and it tanks. It isn't fair. Some children are healthy and others are like always sick. It isn't fair that good people get killed in car wrecks or they die of cancer. And so many times we just find ourselves crying out against injustice. And I want to remind you that Peter was writing to people who knew all about injustice. And for no reason except their faith in Jesus Christ, these Christ followers scattered across What we know is the nation of Turkey, Asia Minor back then, they had lost homes, they had lost families, some of them had lost their lives. The life that they had been called to live as elect exiles wasn't fair. So what do you do when life isn't fair? What do you do when you suffer? See, Peter is telling us that God is calling us to suffer as exiles who are not home yet. He's calling us to live beautiful lives. He's calling us to suffer well. I want to work our way through these verses, verses 8 through 22. And as we do, we're going to see three things that exiles who suffer well do. Here's the first. You can write this down on your notes. Uh, We keep blessing other people. Look at verses 8 and 9. Peter writes, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So you can see it right there. God calls us to live lives of blessing. And maybe you could write this down. What does this mean? To bless someone means you ask God to bless them. To show them his favor and grace. And just to be clear for some of you this this is not like well bless their heart that doesn't count okay if you're from the south you know exactly what that means and it's not a blessing this is something very different and i just want to ask does anyone else think this sounds like a really really good idea 2 days before a presidential election it really does But isn't this exactly what we don't want to do when we're suffering? We are called to bless people even when they don't deserve it. To bless people even when we don't like them. So what is Peter telling us to do specifically? There's two groups of people he's referring to. In verse 8, we see the first group. This is you, you bless the people in your church family. He starts with the body of Christ in a world that does not understand us, a world that increasingly rejects us, we need to have deep connections and support for each other. And Peter actually gives us like a list, five things, five ways we can do this in verse eight. And he, he uses a literary device that's called a chiasm. And some of you people into English and poetry, you're going to really like this. The others of you just pay attention anyway. And uh, chiasms come in different forms. And in this particular case, the first and the fifth way, the first and the last way, they connect. The second and the fourth or next to the last way connect. And then the third way of these five is kind of the, the focal point of what Peter is, is saying. And this is how you might represent it visually. You can see this on the screen. And I, I want with this in mind for you to uh, hear me as I explain how these five ways can be used for us to bless each other here at Southwind. So first of all, Peter says, have unity of mind. Now, this does not mean that we all think alike or we all agree on everything. I mean, how many of you are married? Do you agree with your spouse on everything? And I'll answer that question. You do not. Like, See, Dan and I, we've been married for almost 35 years. And we disagree on some things. So I want to encourage you to pray for her because she's obviously wrong and (laughs) needs to grow in some areas. She's like in process. I hang in there. You know, struggle's real because I love her. And that's a joke if you're new here. But it actually kind of highlights the connection to the fifth characteristic, which is a humble mind. Because you can't have unity of mind without humility, right? See, a humble mind means you are willing to consider the possibility that you might be wrong. Why don't you just say that? It's good practice. I might be wrong. And if. You're humble, you're willing to listen, you're, you're willing to learn. I mean, in the end, I may not agree with you, but I hear you, I respect you. And let me just give an example of where this really needs to happen more. Because right now, I am very confident that some of us on both sides of the political spectrum need to hear this. So many Christians right now are judging and demeaning and writing other Christians off. And it's coming from the left and it's coming from the right. It's coming from every direction. And we're doing this because of differences of political opinion. And and I'm not saying in any way that all political opinions and positions are equally true or biblical. What I'm talking about right now is how we think of each other and talk about each other and live with each other and pray for each other. See, we must have unity on the central, clear teachings of the Bible, unity on what ultimately matters in life, on who God is. The Bible is God's infallible word, why God sent his son Jesus, how we're saved. But there are some issues we really need humility on. And we bless one another as we do that. Second thing we need is sympathy. Literally, this word, both in Greek, it's interesting, and in English, Um, It means to feel with. We feel what others feel so we can respond with sensitivity to their needs. And, you know, people who have true sympathy generally don't say to other people, I know how you feel. Because since they know how they feel, they also know how unhelpful it is to hear someone say to you, I know how you feel. So they don't do that. And we have sympathy, think about this, when we have a tender heart. You can't. Feel with someone, right, unless you have a heart that's open and tender toward them. And that just takes us to the focal point of what Peter's saying. That's brotherly love. Love, here is Peter's point, and it's family love. It's brotherly love. And so, therefore, we should bless each other. Even when we disagree, even when we hurt each other, even when we disappoint each other, we don't give up on each other. One of my prayers... For us at Southwinds, and I hope you're praying it too, is that we will not allow 2020 to divide us. We will not allow the pandemic, the politics, the lockdown, the mask wearing, whatever it is to divide us. You know, we may have conflict with family sometimes, but our commitment to family should be greater than any conflict. Amen? Because we have good news. We have a mission. We have a purpose. That is far, far greater than any of our opinions. So bless others in your church family. It's so important when you're suffering. Secondly, bless the people in your world. Peter, Peter opens this up to people outside the church. And this comes from verse 9. And he says, you are to bless people even when they attack you. Even when they say terrible things about you. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. But on the contrary, bless. Why? For to this you were called. That you may obtain or inherit, literally, inherit a blessing. Let me just ask a quick question you can answer out loud. Do you want God's blessing? Of course you do. Well, Peter says you need to bless people in your world, even the people who revile you, even the people who say and do evil things to you. Let me just ask right now, is there anyone in your world that you need to bless right now? If God brought somebody to your mind right now, I'd encourage you. Why don't you write that down? I'd encourage you, maybe before you leave here, that you actually pray for them. And maybe take more time when you get alone at home after the service to pray for them. Pray blessing on them, just in case you need to be focused in how you pray. (laughs) Why? Why? Why do we do this? Well, look at verses 10 through 12. Peter says, For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who wants to see good days? Who wants to love life? Peter asks it right here. Well, if you do, then when someone speaks evil against you, when they attack you, they treat you unfairly, do not retaliate. Do good to them. Seek peace with them. Peter says you need to remember God is watching. And God wants to see us live beautiful lives. But the fact that God's watching also means something else very important. It means that he sees what has been done to you. God misses nothing. And it may not always feel like it, but God is always listening to your prayers. He knows everything you suffered, and God always protects his children, and God always punishes evil in the end, so you can trust him. Live a beautiful life. Keep blessing others. Second way that we suffer well, keep honoring Christ As Lord. And we see this in verses 13 through 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake you will be blessed. Have no fear of them nor be troubled. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make an offense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you yet do this with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered those who revile your good behavior in christ may be put to shame for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be god's will than for doing evil now the key phrase in these five verses is that phrase in your hearts honor christ the lord is holy i want to show you three ways peter tells us we can keep honoring christ as lord the first way is we honor christ as lord when we know we are blessed and we see that in verse 13 and then the first part of 14. now how many of you have ever said hashtag blessed or you've seen that on social media i mean you go on instagram you go on facebook you look up hashtag blessed and what you usually see there is something that we call humble bragging right that's what we usually see. Now, I know nobody in this room has ever done this, but most of you know someone who has, okay? And so what this is, in case you don't really know about it, is that you, you, you talk about something that's in your life and you just, you, you want to kind of get it out there, but you want to appear humble about it while you're telling everybody about it. So it's like, check out my awesome new car that I just got, hashtag blessed, you know, take a look at my amazing home. Hashtag blessed. Look at my perfect, beautiful family that only looks like this like two minutes every week. (laughs) Hashtag blessed. Look at my amazing. Have you ever noticed how everybody else in the world goes on vacation all the time except for you? Hashtag blessed. You know, that's how we do this. And here's what I want to tell you. Please hear this. This is not how Peter uses this word blessed. Not at all. Not even close. See, I have yet... To see someone say, I'm losing the battle to cancer. Hashtag blessed. COVID-19 has struck my home. Hashtag blessed. I have been rejected for my faith, fired from my job. I'm being ridiculed because I believe in God's word. What it says, hashtag blessed. No one says that today. That's exactly how Peter uses it. In fact, the Greek here doesn't have a future tense like you will be blessed. It's in the present. It says you are a blessed one. There's a present blessing on your life. In other words, if you suffer for the sake of righteousness. And it's so different. It's so different than the way we see it. We define the blessed life as a successful life, a strong marriage, obedient kids, successful career, a great house. But let me ask you, is that how the Bible defines a blessed life? See, the problem with defining blessing the way we do it is it usually leads to pride and self-satisfaction. It usually leads, doesn't it? Be honest with yourself. It usually leads to us not depending on God. We, we end up looking for joy and looking for meaning in lesser things. Peter Peter says the blessed life always involves suffering for righteousness' sake. People hate us, revile us, malign us simply because we believe certain things and live in certain ways simply because we follow Christ. And if we don't see Christ as the blessed life, we're not honoring him as Lord. And you will not be able to suffer well. See, Jesus said, you remember this? My life's a life of suffering, and if they hated me, they'll hate you. Jesus said, no servant is greater than his master. They persecuted me. They will persecute you. Here's the question, Southwinds. Is Jesus enough for you? Are you blessed just because you have Jesus? Vanitha Rendell Reisner says this, blessing is anything God gives that makes us fully satisfied in him, anything that draws us closer to Jesus, anything that helps us relinquish the temporal, hold on more tightly to the eternal. And often it is the struggles and trials, the aching disappointments and the unfulfilled longings that best enable us to do that. She writes later in another article, I begged God for his delivering grace. But God offered me something better, his sustaining grace. That's the blessed life. That's why Peter says you can suffer well when you know that you're blessed. And I have no doubt that Peter was thinking of what he heard Jesus say one day in the sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 10 through 12. Blessed are those persecuted for the sake of righteousness. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. Hashtag blessed. That's a total redefinition, isn't it, of what it means to be blessed? Now... I want to be real clear. I hope you have a great family. I hope you have a strong, vibrant, healthy marriage. I hope you have a nice home in which you enjoy God's blessings. I hope that God gives you plenty of financial resources so you are able to be generous with them. I hope all those things on you. But what if you miss the greatest blessing in the universe because of those temporal blessings? Jesus said it, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? See, that's why Peter says you suffer well when you know that you are blessed. Here's a second way that we keep honoring Christ as Lord when we remember that Christ is in control. See, how do we stand? How do we stand and, and, and remain firm in a culture that rejects us, that reviles us for what we believe that calls it backward that tells us we're on the wrong side of history the way you can stand in a time like the one we live in is when we believe that Christ is in control look at the end of verse 14 Peter says have no fear of them that, that's the persecutors nor be troubled and then verse 15 but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord is holy Now, if I could paraphrase what Peter is doing in these two phrases, it's simply this, don't fear the persecutor, don't fear people, fear God worship god and what what does this mean well think about this think about this i've taught you this before show me what you fear and i'll show you what you worship or you can turn it around show me what you worship and i'll show you what you fear think about how this works in so many ways if i fear rejection by people then i will worship approval and some of you are approval addicts if i fear being lonely then i'll worship companionship and some of you Some of you have virtually destroyed your life, chasing after companionship, making bad decision after bad decision because that's what you worship. If I fear poverty, I'll worship money and possessions. If I fear getting old, I'll worship youth and vitality. If I fear being weak or afraid or out of control, I'll worship power. If I fear feeling stupid, I'll worship intelligence. I mean, we just go on and on and on and on. Show me what you fear. I'll show you what you worship. And Peter says, fear God, fear Christ, don't fear people, don't fear your persecutors. And by fear here, what what Peter's talking about is this, worship him. Put him in a class all by himself. Treat him as supreme. Honor him as Lord. See, this is what this means. If Christ is Lord, if Christ is supreme, it means that our human opponents, our human enemies, those who persecute us, it means they are not in control. You see? See, we don't give people that honor. We do not believe the lie that our persecutors, even those that revile and malign us, that they are actually the ones in control. That honor is due to Christ alone. See practically, just think about it this way. Who are you right now? Who are you honoring as Lord, in your heart and mind? Who, who do you think, really, in the way you face the world, is in control? Is it the leaders of the World Health Organization? Are they calling the shots? Is it the president or is it the Supreme Court? Is it Anthony Fauci or Gavin Newsom? I mean, who is ultimately in control? Does Christ actually sit on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning sovereignly, knowing and determining all things, working everything together for our good? Wayne Grudem in his commentary in 1 Peter says About this section of scripture to honor christ as lord in your hearts is to maintain a continually deep seated inward confidence in christ as reigning lord and king who even now has angels authorities and powers subject to him that's going to be in verse 22 we're going to see more about that later he's in control jesus is in control our god is sovereign he's overseeing global events and microscopic organisms dictators and despots prime ministers and presidents court decisions and COVID-19 nothing has happened in 2020 that surprises God he's in control our God sees every sparrow that falls to the ground He's numbered every hair on your head. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He has numbered your days. He knows the boundaries of your existence. He knows every word before it's on your tongue. The Bible says the die is cast and every decision is from the Lord. And that means there are no lucky slot machines or poker tables in Las Vegas. There is nothing arbitrary. God is over all events, everything. 1 Kings 22 is one of my favorite passages about this. Maybe you remember the story. God's prophet comes to the wicked king Ahab and tells him, today you're going to die in battle. And Ahab says, this guy never says anything good about me. He throws the prophet in jail. He goes out into battle. And he disguises himself as someone not the king. Because they always chased after the king. And he's in battle. And a few verses later, verse 34, we read that. A certain man drew his bow at random... And struck the king of Israel between the scale and the breastplate. Now, just imagine the precision necessary to hit that exact spot to to penetrate right there so that it kills him. I mean, what are the odds? Well, they aren't odds. That's God. That's God saying, I control it all. In Isaiah 45, God speaks and says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? I'm not making this up. Some of you don't like thinking about stuff like this, but this is in the Bible. Calamity, God's in it. Light and darkness, God's in it. Planes fly into buildings, God isn't surprised. Tsunamis wipe out ocean shores, God isn't surprised. Pandemic crosses the globe, God knows, God's in it, God's in control. The wrong man gets elected president. The Supreme Court of the United States makes a decision that causes irreparable harm, it seems, to the church. God knows, God's in control. And what I'm telling you this morning, what you must take away from this place is that you can only suffer well when you know God is in control. Third, we honor Christ as Lord. We, we suffer well when we turn our misery into ministry. Look again at verse 15, second part of the verse. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect Peter says your suffering might be the best moment you have to point others to Jesus I mean anyone can be happy when life is working for them right going well but can you have joy when times are hard see when you go through suffering and you do it with hope and you live with joy People will be curious, and people will look at you, and people will eventually ask why, and they will ask how. And you will have an opportunity to tell them. And Peter says you should be ready to give a defense for what you believe. By the way, there's a difference between giving a defense of our faith and being defensive about our faith. Being ready to give a defense ultimately means, as Peter says here, that we live a life that is so very different that it inevitably evokes questions from other people and when they ask we are ready to give an answer for the questions they're asking. So let me ask you just to kind of consider both sides of that. Here's the first thing and this is not on the the screen or anything but maybe you want to write this down and think about it. When is the last time someone asked you to give the reason for your joy and hope in pain? When is the last time Someone asked you why you're such a generous person. When is the last time someone said, I just don't understand how you can forgive so freely? How you're so patient? You be honest with yourself about answering that question. And by the way, this... This was the secret of the early church's success. They just lived in ways that, that blew everyone's minds. I remember I told you about that book, The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark last week, and he says several things in this book about the early church that set them apart. Real quickly, here's some things he mentions. First of all, they had this multi-ethnic unity, all different kinds of people from all strata and parts of society, all together, all unified. Second, they were radically generous. They shared what they had. They didn't hold it to themselves. They didn't take care of all of their needs first. Third, only in the church was there a regard for all life, especially those lives considered cheap by the Roman Empire. You know, Rome had its own abortion scheme. If a Roman family had a baby they didn't want, they'd just leave it out on the street. And there are ancient letters from Rome, Roman men who who wrote to their wives while they were traveling and she was about to have a baby. If it's a boy, keep it. If it's a girl, throw it away. And we may have found more sanitized ways of doing this, but the abortion industry in our country is essentially the same. We discard the kids we don't want. And interestingly enough, the early church There was a ministry. They practiced things they called baby runs. You say, what in the world is that? Well, Christians would walk the streets at night. Listening for the cries of discarded babies. And churches were soon filled with babies. By the way, particularly baby girls. Just picked up off the streets. Early Christians did all these things and many more things. And these things made them odd. And it provoked questions. When was the last time? When was the last time someone asked you about your generosity oddness? About your forgiveness oddness? About your joyful oddness? When was the last time? And if they haven't, maybe maybe it's because you're really not that different. The famous atheist Christopher Hitchens died a few years ago during the last years of his life. He, he toured a number of university campuses debating a Christian scholar named Larry Taunton. And Larry Taunton later wrote a book about their experience. He described in this book about how very uh, few of his intellectual Rebuttals made any deep impression on Hitchens. But he said during the last months of his life, Hitchens began to question things, and it was mainly because of Taunton's decision to adopt a special needs girl from Russia with a whole lot of problems. And Larry said, he just kept asking me why. He also saw Larry's calmness in the face of death. And we don't have any proof, actually, that Christopher Hitchens ever became a believer before he died. But that kindness and that hope did something to him. That intellectual argument could not ever do. And I'm telling you today, friends, listen, this is effective evangelism. Effective evangelism doesn't come from mastering a particular evangelistic sales pitch or presentation. It comes from living in a way that provokes questions. And that leads to the other side, the other side of this, another question you can write down, are you ready to share that when asked? Are you ready to share that when asked? And Peter says, when you do that, be gentle, be respectful, because it doesn't matter how good your answer, or even how compelling your life, if you answer without gentleness or respect, you'll forfeit your witness. Have you ever noticed that screaming at someone in Jesus' name doesn't do much good i mean do i need to explain to you that no one ever gets converted through you saying mean cutting things on facebook or picketing a gay pride parade gentleness and respect must characterize our defense Because you can do everything right. You can know the Bible. You can do good deeds. But the minute you speak hatefully towards someone, you tear it all down. It all looks like a sham. Now, before we go to our last point, what if you stopped? And what if you thought about what you are suffering? Would you consider how God wants to use that, that thing that's pain in your life? to be a testimony to others about your hope in Christ. Here's the third way that we suffer well. You can write this down as well. Keep remembering Christ's suffering. Now, verses 18 through 22, this is where Peter, I think, gives really the most important counsel of all because he says, when you suffer, look at what Jesus suffered. Listen to these verses. Baptism which corresponds to this now saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. You get all that? Yeah, these are are some of the most confusing, most difficult verses to interpret actually anywhere in the New Testament. And you're probably right now head spinning going, what in the world is all this about? Spirits in prison and Noah and his ark and baptism. Well, we don't actually have the time to work through all of the interpretive options here. We could spend like a whole hour or more. But let me just say this. This is the most important thing I want you to take from the rest of what I have to say. Verse 18, the first verse verse in this group is the key it is the most important verse you must never leave this as you're trying to understand the rest for christ also suffered once for sins the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to god see the ultimate reason we can suffer well is we remember that we follow a savior who suffered well and when we struggle with unjust suffering we remember that jesus suffering was the most unjust suffering as all How do we suffer well? Write this down. We suffer well when we follow Christ's example of enduring unjust suffering. And sometimes we need to be reminded as we're suffering and we start feeling sorry for ourselves. We are not above Christ. Would you agree with me? Jesus never deserved anything that he suffered. He did nothing wrong. And yet he suffered. Why would we expect anything different? See, in his suffering, here's what happened. Jesus stood in our place, righteous for the unrighteous, taking the punishment we deserve. He defeated our worst enemy, sin and death. He brought us to God. Our sins have been forgiven. We have the hope of eternal life. And this helps us, friends. Think about it. When life is unfair, because the thing that Satan is trying to tell us always, you know this, right? When life is unfair, he's trying to tell us God doesn't care. He's trying to tell us God's forsaken you. But Peter is saying right here that suffering is no sign that God has forsaken us. Because Christ has carried our sin. He's absorbed the wrath of God. He has brought us to God. And that matters more than anything else. Amen? It matters more than temporary comfort. It matters more than material blessing. It matters more than anything. God is for us. God is with us. And the rest of 1 Peter 3 actually is undergirding this reality. Briefly, I may explain it this way. First, Peter strengthens us with the situation in Noah's day. He goes on to say in the second part of verse 18 through the first part of verse 20 that he talks about Jesus being put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit. And then he says this thing about proclaiming to the spirits in prison who formerly did not obey. And then he's talking about Noah and the ark being prepared. And you're going like, what in the world is going on? There's a lot going around on here. And there's a lot of controversy over what this means. Let me just tell you what I think and how it relates to the main point. I don't think this is saying that Jesus descended into hell and preached to people to give them another chance. That contradicts other parts of Scripture. I don't think, as some people think, that it means that Jesus went in the Spirit preached to people in Noah's day. That's a possibility. I do think it means that in his post-resurrection state, Jesus preached to demonic beings and he proclaimed his victory over them. He declared their defeat to them. And here's how this helps us. Just as Jesus was vindicated before his enemies, he's telling those of us who follow him in our suffering, we will, by God, one day be vindicated as well. Peter strengthens us with that knowledge, and that should be a comfort to you because it may look sometimes like it's all going wrong for you. You can know in Christ one day you will be vindicated. And then secondly, Peter strengthens us for suffering by describing the meaning of baptism. In verses 20 and 21, he talks about the flood, how eight persons got brought safely through water and then he says baptism which now corresponds to this saves you not as a removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience now think about it the flood waters that brought judgment in Noah's day they remind Peter of Christian baptism and some people want to try to say that Peter is saying that baptism brings salvation but of course The scripture doesn't teach this, and Peter even qualifies it himself right here. He says it's not the waters that save. It's not the removal of dirt from the body. Instead, he says it's a pledge of a good conscience toward God. Peter says baptism may cleanse the body as the believer is immersed, but that's not why he says that it saves. It saves for one reason. It is an expression of faith, the pledge of a good conscience toward God. Paul says in Romans ten thirteen, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And baptism is such a calling, it is an appeal to the Lord. You say, well, how does that strengthen us for suffering with Christ like this? When we have come through the water of baptism, we have passed through death and judgment. We have been buried with Christ and risen with him. We have passed from death to life for us when we are saved. For us, judgment is passed. So the suffering that we are now experiencing, that means that cannot be the condemnation of God. That condemnation has already been experienced for us by Christ. And we have received that reality by faith and we expressed our faith through baptism. And so baptism stands as a constant reminder for us that our worst judgment has been averted. That Christ took the wrath of God for us, that we will never have to face God's judgment, that there is therefore now no condemnation. We have already died that death in Christ and been raised in him. And therefore, our present suffering is not God's wrath, but his loving discipline as our father and his preparation of us for glory. Peter ends by telling us, reminding us that Christ is ruling above all things, second part of verse 21 through verse 22. He talks about angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Now, I want to leave you with this one thought. As you go into and through your life, as you face injustice, as you face potentially in the days ahead, persecution, persecution. No harassing, oppressing, deceiving, accusing demon is free to do as he pleases. The people in our culture who hate us because we love Jesus, they are not free to do as they please. All things, angels, authorities, and powers, all things subject to God in Jesus Christ, we can have confidence in that. We can take comfort in that. Jesus reigns at God's right hand and we are under him and nothing can happen to us without his permission. Satan, the powers, none of them can touch us unless God permits. And God only permits what is for our good, what is ultimately for his glory. And if we know that and if we live in that, then we can suffer and suffer well. This is the word of the Lord for us today. All God's people together, would you say amen? Let's bow our heads.